Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guests today are Beth Silvers and Sarah Stewart-Holland, who many of you, of course, know as the hosts of the most excellent Pantsuit Politics podcast. But they're also the authors of a new book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations. That's a great title. Uh, and we're going to be talking about that book today. Beth and Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. You know, uh, before we get into the book, I, I want to talk about pantsuit politics, which is kind of the, uh, obviously came before that. And of course, in the book, you talk about sort of your story and how you came to do the podcast and that. So okay, can you talk a little bit at first about how you ended up becoming political podcasters? <laughs> um, well, I think that no, that's not definitely something we saw on the horizon when I, I was blogging. Beth had guest posted for my blog a couple times. And my husband kept harassing me to start a podcast. And I was like, well, maybe I could interview all my friends who work in politics because I had worked for Hillary Clinton and I just completed some political training. I thought, well, maybe I'll interview women in politics. But the first one I did just kind of sat there. And then when Beth started guest posting and it, and it really hit a nerve, a lot of the things she had to say, I thought, well, maybe we could do a podcast together. I, mean, I was just chuckling because even when I was saying to Beth, hey, you want to start a podcast, I definitely didn't envision somebody would be saying, oh, well, what was your plan to become political podcasters? Because the answer is we did not have a plan. Yeah, it just sort of happened, huh? Yeah, I mean, I think we started talking and we didn't know what we were making. And it's certainly evolved a lot since November of 2015. We're in the middle of kind of a strategic planning period for ourselves right now. And looking back at our first episodes, even our first couple of years of episodes, I feel like we're just now starting to understand, here's what we're really about. And we're just now really finding the voices that we want to have. I think we've learned and grown so much over the years. And it's just been a privilege that our audience has taken that journey with us. Yeah. And, and so obviously you felt that there was a need that needed to be well that needed to be filled and and, and you're you know filling it at this point we, yeah, wanted we to definitely have... wanted to have oh. <laughs> go ahead sarah <laughs> and so we definitely wanted to have the kind of conversations we weren't hearing i mean there weren't a ton of political podcasts at the time there still aren't a lot of ton of pol independent political podcasts yep. i mean you guys and us and i can name like three or four other ones but there were not a lot of female-led spaces. There were not a lot of spaces that emphasized um, grace and listening instead of point scoring and yelling. I mean, our tagline is no shouting, no insult, plenty of nuance, because we just didn't feel like we saw that anywhere else. Yeah. You know, I, I recently did some research on kind of the political podcast universe, and that's exactly exactly what I found. Of course, the biggest ones tend to be the the most prominent ones tend to be a lot of just kind of partisan echo chambery sort of stuff. Well, and you know how hard it is to do this independently, to stay current, you know, to get your episode <laughs> researched, prepared, yep. recorded, 
produced and out the door while it's still relevant for people who don't have a team of 20, 30 people working a podcast, that is incredibly hard. Yeah. And so I think what we all do is such a labor of love because we also recognize the importance of having folks who don't live in D.C. or on the coast talking about these issues and talking about them with a little bit of distance from feeling beholden to partisan partisan talking points or to sort of mainstream media views. Yeah, definitely. So, okay, you have this podcast and it's doing really well. And then you decide, well, let's write a book. That's a, that's obviously another huge thing. So what led to that decision? Why, why did you decide you wanted to, you wanted to try out this, uh, this other medium? Well, I mean, I think that we had listeners reaching out to us and saying, are you guys going to write a book? We wish you would put together a guide about how to do this. And we were thinking about it. And uh, I mean, honestly, originally it was, we'll just self-publish something on Amazon for the people that are asking for it. And then when we mentioned on our podcast, this is something we'd like to do. We have an amazing listener, Sharon, who's a literary agent who reached out and said, do you have a literary agent? And we said, we don't know what that means. (laughs) She was very patient with us. And I mean, she really helped us um, navigate the process and realize that there was a wider audience for this um, beyond just the people that listen to our show who was that who are asking for it. Yeah. And I, I read the book and it's you know, very engaging. I, I thought it's great. Uh, it's a great read as they say. And what, one thing I noticed throughout the book, of course, and this is by design, both of you are Christian, of course, and, and you reference throughout the book, your faith and how important it is in a number of different aspects. And so that led me to think, well, what about people who, you know, aren't Christian or maybe just aren't, you know, believers of any sort at all? Uh, what would you say? I mean, did you feel like the the sort of lessons and advice that you give in the book, that that applies, you know, more or less equally well to anyone, regardless of regardless of faith or lack thereof? Yes, we think that you can easily substitute values for faith throughout the book. And The reason that our perspectives as people of faith have become more important to us as we've done the show is that we've come to understand that you can't talk about politics without talking about your most deeply held values. The conversation America's having about about abortion right now is a great example of that, right? You can't really talk about your position on abortion without getting to some pretty fundamental things, what you believe about the universe and how it works. And so whether you are an atheist or um, a Muslim or a Christian like we are, we just want to be really honest about where we're coming from so that we invite other people to do the same. Right. And we can all put our values on the table and say, this is what's informing my perspective. This is what's driving me through these conversations. And it opens up much more interesting discussions when we're willing to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but, but I wonder, It's at least it seems to me that in a way it's easier to have political conversations with somebody of, say, a similar faith, because you do share that you can kind of go back to, say, well, you know, the Bible or, or what have you. And maybe it takes a little bit more work to do the same thing when people come from a different tradition or no tradition at all, really. What, what do you think? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think that it, it can sometimes be the opposite. There's no fiercer fight than people throwing scripture at each other. Ah, okay. There's yeah. You know, when, when you're familiar with each other um, and you're familiar with sort of your, your faith framework, then it can become a weapon. I think often 
what happens when we are discussing our values with someone from a different faith background, someone we're not familiar with, then there, if not curiosity, because I'm not going to be so Pollyanna that I think people come to conversations with people of different faiths and then with curiosity. Um, obviously, you know, much of the world's history and conflict is around faith-based conflicts. But I do think that there, at least in, in, in my own personal experience and individual conversations, because I don't understand the Quran, because I am not gotcha. well-trained in Hebrew law, like I have to be more um, open and I have, to, I have to come at it from a learning perspective as opposed to if I'm going to fight, <laughs> well, a fight might be a strong word. If I'm going to have a conversation with a very conservative Christian about what I think is reflective of the radical love of Christ and what they think is around, it can get pretty heated. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it actually makes sense. The people oftentimes that I think we have the most, uh, uh, maybe not venom, but certainly the most heated arguments sometimes are the people who are, we see as heretics or apostates, kind of that sort of thing, as opposed to people from a, from an entirely different tradition. I think that's a really interesting point. Well, I think it's a lot about expectation. Yeah. You know, the meanest emails that I get about the show are from other Republicans because they feel like I'm not being Republican <laughs> enough. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think when and I think that happens um, with faith, too, when you when there's an expectation that we're going to be on the same page because we share some kind of label. Um, it's very disappointing when that expectation is not met. But when you go into a conversation expecting difference. Then you get this pleasant surprise of things that you share. I think that's part of why Sarah and I have become such good friends over the course of doing the podcast. We started from the premise of we're going to be in different places about a lot of things. And so every time we agree, it's like a treat. Look at this. We agree. (laughs) How wonderful is that? We're more connected than we thought. And I feel like if we could drop some of those expectations of each other and be more curious, you know, that's what we're advocating in the book. You'll have better discussions that way. That's a good point. Now. In, in the book, one of the things that you write that really just struck me was, uh, and this was about kind of the early, early, early days of pantsuit politics. You say you made a commitment to be vulnerable and honest. Now, the honest thing, I was like, yeah, OK, you're going to be honest. That makes sense. But vulnerable. I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that because it just it really struck me and it seemed particularly important to me. Well, I think if we have if we ever want to stop treating politics like a battleground, then we're going to have to expose ourselves and take our shields down and drop our weapons. And that is inherently vulnerable to say, I'm not here to only feel right, to only feel righteous, to only score points or to only make you feel dumb. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to try to understand. And I want you to understand me better. And in order for someone to understand our perspective or our experiences, They can't just be the, well, this is when I learned how right I was. That's not interesting. That's not convincing. It has to be, this is when I went through something hard and this is what I learned. This is when I had some pain and this is what I learned from that. And this is the perspective I gained when I went through suffering. And I think that, you know, when we're talking about values, when we're talking about the future, when we're talking about our kids, you can't do that when you keep a shield up and a weapon in your hand. It also means... Being willing to say, I got that wrong when we discussed it the first time. You know this, Michael, like it's it's scary to have your voice out on the internet forever. <laughs> and I tell people now, like there are hundreds of hours that you can find of me, me talking and being wrong or saying things in a way that I wouldn't say them today. But if you're going to do this, you have to show up as 
the entire person that you are and then be willing to go back later and think, yikes, I've grown a lot and just be happy that you've grown instead of feeling embarrassed about it. But that does take a big commitment to vulnerability and and really announcing to the world, I'm a flawed human doing my best here. Yeah. And it, it can be especially tough to do at first uh, in, in public, certainly. Yes. One of the initial suggestions that you make in the book, you say people need to take off their jerseys. Uh, I I love the metaphor. Uh, What did you mean by that? Conversations aren't very interesting when they're predictable, right? And most of our political conversations are really predictable right now because we show up fully dressed in our party's talking points. And what concerns the two of us most about that is that at some point you stop asking, is this what I think? Because you're just a representative of the team. And sports are often not the healthiest place to work things out, right? <laughs> like they're, you know, we our athletic competition can reach a fervor that is not conducive to problem solving. And so when we think of politics just in the binary, I win, you lose, and that's how we view every single issue, there is no space for problem solving. So we advocate, let's take that jersey off. Let's look at a problem or a topic with fresh eyes. If I knew nothing about who stood where on this issue, how would I view it? And I, I, of course, agree entirely with that, that idea that politics is a, a zero sum game, like a sports contest where someone wins or loses drives me, drives me nuts and, and especially drives me nuts when say, oh, I don't know, I'll be a little partisan here. The president of the United States seems to adopt that, that attitude. But, uh, but I, you know, I totally agree with that for sure. Uh, go well, ahead. and I, I think the other thing that does, because look, there are winners and losers. And we have winner-take-all elections. And that's something both of us would like to change. But we can't get to the point where people in, feel engaged enough to change something like our the way our elections are run. Yeah. If they're so cynical or turned off or battle-ready at every moment that they can't look further down the road and say, what would, what would help us in 10 years? What would keep, get us out of this in 10, 20 years? What would be better for our kids? I mean, one of the best things I... Um, learned recently it was a researcher who was on the Ezra Klein show and she was talking about how the the high stake congressional environment in which the control of Congress switches back and forth between parties more frequently than it has in recent history. It shrinks everybody's timeline. The only thing people are looking at is the next election because that's what because it can change yep. control of the Congress. And so that makes the stakes really high. Well, that's all true. And also the stakes are pretty high with climate change. So how are we going to start looking further down the road to that if all we care about is the next election? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, after kind of after you get into that, you talk about this interesting idea of uh, people finding their why. Um, and, oh, what, is, what, is, what does that mean? What, what are you getting at with that? Whether it's faith or partisanship or um, identity, based on where you live or what your family is like. We think a lot of people are not testing their own beliefs. It's just, this is what we believe because. And so we've really tried to push ourselves to go deeper. Why do I believe this? What 
fundamentally motivates my political participation. A big realization that I had as we were writing the book is that politics seems to be this faraway thing when it's really just how we want to live in community with each other. And when I phrase it that way, then I think, okay, well, who do I want to be as we live in community with each other? That creates a list of adjectives that don't sound anything like the way most of us participate in politics. You know, we participate usually in an adversarial way. And when you think this is how we live together in community, my list looks a lot like I want to be a peacemaker. You know, I want to facilitate compromise. I want to look at solutions that benefit my neighbors as much as they benefit me. It just changes the picture and it takes a really deliberate stepping back from the news cycle to be able to generate that list. Right. So it sounds like, I mean, a lot of people would say, well, I know my why, but it's more of a, what they're really saying is, well, this is my team essentially. And that's the why, but that's not the why you two are talking about. Right. We're talking about something deeper. Yeah. I mean, we've both done that. I've definitely done that. I've definitely thought this is how I feel because this represents my values. And then I start scraping the surface or I dig a little deep or I learn about the history and I think, oh my gosh, I was just following the party line. I had not dug into this. I had not thought about why this is important to me or why this pushes my buttons or what I was getting wrong. I mean, that's definitely happened to me. Yeah, I, I know that experience for sure. And after you, after you do that, though, then you do something that I found really surprising, especially given what you guys do for a living. You say, hey, maybe a lot of people take politics as more important than it actually is. And that kind of, that surprised me that you brought that up. And, but I thought it was a great point. I was hoping you could expand on it a little bit here. I mean, I think that politics is important. Look, I'm a political science major. I've dedicated my whole life to politics. And I, I think it's life or death for some people. Yeah. And at the same time, it is not a container built to hold our entire identities and value systems. It's just not up for the task. Elections and politicians and even laws cannot contain the complexity of a human being. So just filling out that list and saying, this is who I am, just, it's not going to work. We have other institutions that are better equipped to meet some of our needs, that are better equipped to speak to other aspects of the human condition. And because of a lot of reasons, because some of those institutions are imperfect and have been suffering over the last few decades, um, we've, we've just kept shoveling more and more on politics to the point where 2016 was traumatic. It felt like the end of the world. I don't ever want to feel like I felt on 2016. And I don't mean because I never want Donald Trump to win again. I mean, because I don't want to feel like all is lost because of an election result. Yeah. Because there's always another day to fight. And there's always another day to work to improve our nation and improve our world. And so when we turn elections into the battle royale and the, and, you know, the future of the human race, not only do we not give ourselves credit and not, we disempower ourselves. We become cynical. It's this, this terrible paradox where we think it's the only thing that matters and that nothing we can do can help. And so I, I just think it puts us all in this really, terrible position, not only as individuals, but as a society and a culture. Yeah. Well, you know, there's an argument that, that I'm sure you're probably familiar with, and we hear it more on the right than the left, basically saying that, well, as religion has become less of a factor 
in people's lives. Some people have just found that they needed to fill that that void, as it were. And some people have tried to fill it perhaps with politics. And it, it sounds like you would agree that that's just that's just not something that's going to that's going to work out long term. Well, I don't think it's just religion. I mean, I think that other societal institutions, um, sort of professional organizations, cultural organizations, yeah. and also the, 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 the rise of other sort of behemoths in our culture, like technology, like social media, that perpetuate that disconnection, that push people away from each other um, when they really need connection, be it through a church, be it through a cultural institution, be it through their community or neighborhood or whatever. And so, oh, well, I can just go on Facebook and yell about for or against <laughs> Donald Trump and feel yeah. like I have community. And that's just not true. Yeah. yeah. I kind of struggle with that talking point from my side of the aisle. While I think it's true that um, we are trying to make politics the entire container, and some of that might be because we spend less time in churches or affiliating with faith institutions, I think it's a little bit deeper than that. Sarah talked um, several months ago about a study she read saying that we need we don't do things together now. There aren't tasks that we come together to try to complete. So we get these shortcuts on connection, right? We have a false sense of being connected to other people because we like what they tweet or because we're members of a group together, but that group exists primarily online or in the workplace. And so there aren't a lot of spaces outside of where you work where you actually try to accomplish something with people who disagree with you. And I think because of that, we've started to think of politics, like we say in the book, just as sport, because we're not really trying to accomplish something with each other. And maybe if we had more experiences, I love the candidates who are out there talking like John Delaney about service programs where more Americans actually try to do things together physically. I think that would help a lot. You know, um, when you but when you write about, sorry, write about uh, this idea of politics being so important and people getting so worked up over it, you bring in uh, the notion of the uh, the slippery slope, which is almost certainly my favorite logical fallacy. And and uh, how do you? I mean, you see this a lot, right, in people's thinking about politics and so forth. Yeah, it's like we don't trust ourselves to exercise any judgment if we start down a path, I think we've come to believe that we're always going to end up at the most extreme place that path could possibly lead. And that really robs us of one of the most interesting parts of being human. I mean, we have we have consciousness for the very purpose of being able to decide where we want to live on a spectrum of things. And I think the slippery slope just furthers the sense that everything is binary. Yeah. And we always have this choice or that one, but no gray can exist. And that's I think the biggest single problem that we have in our politics in this country right now. Yeah. And I feel like most of the other media, not not you two, certainly uh, kind of exacerbate that problem with looking, you know, everything is a constitutional crisis or the beginning of authoritarian rule or, or, or some such kind of thing. You know, uh, would, would you would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, they love a binary. They yeah. love a good and a bad, a black and a white. It sells better. It's more. E- it's easier to understand. It's easier to understand in the increasingly short frame of time of frame, little time <laughs> frame that they have to convey whatever they're willing to convey. And like, you know, look, I get it. My brain wants to do that too. I desperately want to just have two sides of everything and let there be a right and a wrong. 
um, it's hard. It's difficult to face the gray in life and to face the nuance and to understand that both two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Um, but I get why they do it. I mean, and I think they definitely do. No, there's a, Part way through the book, there's a word that I that I come across that that readers come across that you rarely see in the context of political conversations, and that word is is grace. Uh, obviously, it's very important to both of you. You devote an entire chapter of the book uh, to this concept of giving grace. Uh, what is that, and how do you implement that in political dialogue conversation? We talk about grace because. We don't mean civility. You know, we a lot of conversations we have, people are like, oh, this is a conversation about civility. And we mean something quite a bit deeper than civility. We think it's important to be civil with one another, of course. But we don't think that polite conversations are going to actually advance America beyond the stalemate that we find ourselves in. So when we talk about grace, we really mean internalizing the belief that other people have a right to be here as much as we do. And that comes for us from a Christian framework, but we think there is a very relevant form of secular political grace available to everyone. These are your fellow Americans. Like it or not, we are connected to one another. We are in relationship with one another. Our very presence impacts the other people around us. And so the answer to something horrible happening is never to dehumanize anybody else. We cannot meet dehumanizing policies with dehumanizing responses. We're kind of in this space right now where we treat everything that happens politically as war, and so all the rules are off. And what we're saying with grace is, look, nothing justifies treating another person as less than. We can oppose them. We can vigorously advocate against what they stand for, we can declare it wrong because sometimes it is, but they are still our fellow human being and we'd still need to uphold their basic dignity and respect at all times. And that's, that's, that's really, that's really important and definitely something we see. It seems like less and, and less of, uh, along with that, you talk about the importance of curiosity in having these conversations. Now, some people would say, well, you know, curiosity is one of those things like, I don't know, like height or eye color or something. You're either a curious person or you're not a curious person. Now, I- I'm assuming you would disagree with this or else you wouldn't talk about cultivating curiosity, right? No, and I can say, let me let me shout back from the other side um, as a person who used to not be very curious and of why people disagree with me. Or it wasn't that I, here's the thing. It's not that I wasn't curious. It's that I thought I had it figured out. <laughs> yeah. It's that I thought I understood totally and completely why someone would disagree with me and why they were wrong. And that's just ego. I mean, so often I think a lack of curiosity is just is just ego. And um, I am a a optimist to the core, and I believe that ego is something someone can always work on and deal with and confront. So um, I'm not going to, I reject the premise. Let me say that. Yeah. Beth, I I assume you would agree there. I do. I think that one of the most fun things that we do on our show is this segment called compliment the other side. And both of us look for someone not of our party to highlight their work. And what I've found in doing that segment is that if you're looking for it, you find it. 
and you find it in places that you don't expect and you find it often, it, it becomes easier um, to see those good moments of work from people that you typically disagree with when you're looking for it. And that to me is an easy way to start to cultivate greater curiosity. If you can just give yourself you just have to tell your brain what to focus on, right? And then your brain starts to expand what it will focus on um, in ways that are that are fun and that grow you as a human being. That, that is such a great idea and recommendation. I, when you when you first started doing that, was it more difficult than it is now, or how how was your kind of uh, your evolution on that? I guess it's always think- difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more difficult at the beginning. I really find the practice of it to make it easier. Now, are there weeks when it's harder than other weeks? Sure. But what's really fun about it for me, and part of this is just I'm kind of a research nerd, but it often sends me to looking at state and local governments. We Mm -hmm. forget the really great work that happens at the state and local level because the federal morass just takes over everything. But I love finding like a Democratic legislator in Pennsylvania working on a school lunch program. You know, there are just things that you that you see that really kind of change the way you're looking at the the total picture because you've decided to look for something really positive going on. Yeah. Uh, another thing you talk about or recommendation you make is uh, the uh, embracing the paradox. And on the surface, you might say, well, that that seems kind of odd. You know, when I think of paradoxes, I think of, well, logical opposites, right? You know, uh, uh, in our, uh, Sarah, you mentioned our, you know, our, our winner take all system. You can't vote for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. One of them has to win. One of them has to lose. Uh, going back to uh, abortion, which has come up, you can't be pro in the pro-choice camp and the pro-life camp. And so one response maybe to embracing the paradox would be this sort of saying, well, we should just resolve the paradox instead of embrace them. And so obviously that's not what you're getting at. So I was hoping you can kind of flesh out that concept a little bit. No, I mean, I think that abortion is a perfect example. It's something yeah. we've been talking about all week on fancy politics. You most certainly can be personally pro-life and politically pro-choice. That is not inconsistent. Um, I think that there are a lot of people when you give them permission to say that you can, I can, I can feel a physical relief, like a mm-hmm. literal exhale often when people are like, oh, yeah, that's how I feel. I don't like it. I value life. I don't want anybody to ever get abortion. And at the same time, I understand that the legal framework, the laws and government is not the best place to work out every single conflict I have with the idea of abortion. Um, I think that releasing the, releasing the idea that um, that that either there is this perfect logical consistency um, available to us, or even that it is desirable a lot of the time. You know, we live in a big, complex country, and the idea that we're just going to have um, that it's like math, and we're just going to plug in these numbers mm-hmm. and reach this easy conclusion that it's just if anybody would plug in the same numbers, they would get. I mean, it's just not realistic, and so often I think. You will look at an issue and you will say, I, you know, I see, I can see the conflict. I can see that there is no easy answer here. And I see the truth um, and the experiences of both sides. Yeah. And maybe not even the truth, but just, I just understand it. And I'm not, I can't argue that person out of their experience. 
Um, you can hate abortion all day long, but if abortion saves somebody's life, what are you going to tell her? She's a liar. No, that abortion didn't save your life. I mean, I think that um, that's what's difficult is we want to we want to treat it like it's zeros and ones when it's human beings and human beings are full of contradictions and, and complexities and paradoxes. And so our our laws and our politics, which, like I said, are always a reflection of our values, are going to be full of those as well. Yeah. You mentioned kind of separating the personal from the political in some points, and it, it seems to me that sort of ties into that previous point you make about how uh, if people make politics the be-all and end-all of their existence, they're going down a, a, a bad, uh, unsatisfying and unproductive road, ultimately. I think it also gets to the point about not making politics, you know, putting politics in its place in that when we have these conversations where we don't embrace the paradox, then we start to act like the government is the sole solution to any problem or the sole cause of any problem. And that's usually not true. Sarah and I had another one of these both things are true moments when we talked about rural America recently. We were talking about projects that have been designed to come in and kind of save rural America, sometimes through expansion of broadband or um, the introduction of um, coding camps, you know, in coal mm -hmm. country and how many of those projects, well intended as they may have been in design, have failed for a variety of reasons. And it took us down this path, as lots of our conversations do, to, well, should the government take this over or should private industry take this over? And I think what we recognized in the course of the conversation is both have a role to play to be part of the solution. Both have also been part of the problem. Yeah. And all of that is true at once. And well-designed solutions have to account for the risks and benefits associated with nonprofit players, governmental players, and for-profit corporations. And so so it gets back to, to Sarah, to your point about this, you know, people thinking in those binary terms when when oftentimes it's uh, it, it's a lot more uh, complex and uh, uh, nuanced than than that, which is something I want to get to in just a minute here. But, uh, you know, one major issue I think a lot of people have with having political conversations that don't descend into shouting and name calling and that sort of thing is that if people, well, that people need to be willing to, as you put it, get comfortable with being uncomfortable, which I think is a, is a great turn of phrase. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that's worked for you? Because obviously you've, you, you know, you two have, have worked together now for, for years on the show. And obviously there's, I'm sure there's been an evolution in that. So how did that work for you personally? I mean, I'm absolutely a better happier, more fulfilled human being because of my work on fancy politics and my work with Beth. I mean, what I say often is that we are, we're not just from different ends of the political spectrum, but we are also um, very complementary personality-wise. We see the world differently. We react to stress differently. Um, we work differently. And honestly, sometimes the more I, I dig into politics um, and our political disagreements, one of my favorite favorite, favorite books that we've read during the journey of fancy politics is The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, that's just true of a lot of politics. Again, we wanted to hold things that's not meant to hold. And sometimes what we're disagreeing about is personality differences and different ways of handling stress and different stories we tell ourselves about the roles of individual and the roles of culture. And we're trying to, to, to have these big, giant um, conversations in this one little tiny realm. And I think when we can just 
release ourselves and have those conversations, even if they start out about politics, but give ourselves permission to not make it a battle, but to really talk about these things in an open and honest way. I mean, the truth is that Beth and I haven't just been talking for three years about politics. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about parenting and marriage and what a good life looks like and what it means to be in community and what it means to be kind. And I'm a better person because of that. To, to take time and to think about what do I want my choices to look like? What kind of impact do I want to have? What do I want my work to mean in the world? Those are incredibly fulfilling conversations to have. And sometimes they can start with politics. Um, often I think they can start with politics if we start stop treating it like a battle and start treating it like a journey we're taking together. And what I wish I could, you know, just magically impart to every American is that the journey is so worthwhile. It is so fulfilling if we give it a chance. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like in, in taking that journey, one of the things that I, I don't know if it's necessarily a prerequisite, but it certainly makes it easier is a level of trust. I mean, I know I, I've known I've known Jay for he's, uh, forever, 20 plus years. And uh, I feel like it made it a lot. E it makes it a lot easier for me to kind of push and challenge him and vice versa, because we know in the end we're you know, we have each other's backs and we're friends and that sort of thing. And so it seems to me in part with a lot of Americans, that level of trust there really isn't isn't in place, which makes it so much more difficult, you know? When we were talking about the situation with Ralph Northam in Virginia mm -hmm. before that just died down, Sarah said something that I think is so important. She was talking about the test maybe for our action in response to stories like this needs to be what will increase trust. Because we do have this major deficit in how we view other people. We were talking recently with someone about whether this is the most polarized America has ever been. And it occurred to me that one, I don't, I don't know that we are, but what I think is different is that for most of my childhood, at least I was comfortable with the idea that politicians weren't great. You know, politicians are, are kind of other, they're bad people or they're, they have mm -hmm. nefarious motives. Um, but now it's, Politicians are terrible, and so are all of my fellow Americans. <laughs> and yeah. so I think you're right that if you and, and that's another reason we say, like, don't make everything about politics. Don't resolve to finalize an issue in one discussion. You don't need to have coffee with a friend and emerge with new legislation on immigration. You just need to be building a relationship and commit to continuing to come back and talking again. And you, you can. It's amazing. We wrap up a lot of podcasts and I have about 30 things I wish I had said and uh. didn't. Um, but I realized Sarah and I will talk again. You know, we'll talk yeah. again. And that's the most important thing is that we're going to just show up again. And that is really the genesis of the trust to me. There is nothing that Sarah is going to say to me on our show that is going to make me say, that's it. I quit. We're never doing another episode. Yeah. yeah. If we could all that feel that comfort with one another, I think it would be really different. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, another important thing and, and uh, that I totally agree with is uh, finding a way to, if not exit, at least to take take breaks from the, the partisan echo chamber in, in the media. And so I, I was curious on a practical level what each of you has done to sort of 
get out of your own partisan media comfort zone and where you explore on the other side that you found to be, you know, the most the most kind of helpful to sort of expand your broaden your view and get a better understanding of what kind of the other side thinks? Well, for me, um, I read a lot of somewhat far left blog posts and sources. I've kind of curated my personal Twitter feed Uh to be more left leaning than right leaning. And sometimes that means that I read quite a bit that just makes me like (laughs) shake my head, but it always offers me something. And that's the thing. I'm not looking to read things to stand up and cheer and say, wow, I just read something that makes me feel really confirmed and smart. And so when I read, you know, a piece from Salon, for example, that is just much farther left than I can really go, I always find either a piece of information or a perspective or even something that makes me mad. But then I'm able to say, why does this make me mad? You know, what is it about me that is reacting to this? And I find that incredibly helpful. Uh, that's that's great. I, I got to say, just personally, I, I have a, as a person on the left, I have a problem with a lot of the stuff on Salon. So the <laughs> fact that you can do that. Um, Sarah, what about you? I always find, well, first of all, let's be real. Beth is always a good source because she will say, well, I, I found this article. If I, I feel like if she finds it interesting or convincing because she is a source I trust, then often I can go there. Like, I'm not going to lie to you and say I watch Fox and Friends in the morning. I do not watch Fox and Friends in the morning. I don't watch any cable news ever, Um, unless we're on it. (laughs) But I think that, you know, she's, she's through, through listening to her and listening to the sources that she really finds interesting and convincing, you know, the National Review, the Federalist, those sort of, the intellectual conservative space, I think, is more appealing to me. And we had a listener share with us once, and we, I mean, we talk about this in the book, that it's often best if you can find someone who disagrees with you, but like communicates in the same way. Yeah. So yeah. I don't, I don't engage with a lot of super emotional left sources. Now there are a couple feminist writers who are righteously angry. I am also righteously angry as a feminist and I enjoy reading them, but like, I don't watch Rachel Maddow. I don't do a lot of the like super um, high stake left, sources so the right sources like that don't appeal to me either because i read a lot of long reads and um intellectual examinations those that type of approach on the right appeals to me much more and so i think if you can find that sort of calibration with they 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 speak they have a they have the same approach as i do even if i disagree with what they're saying i always find that helpful yeah, I think that's great advice. In fact, as you were explaining that, I thought, wow, that's a, that, that's pretty much what I do. And and Sarah's explaining it much better than I ever have. So thank you for that. Uh, that to, to close, I wanted to talk about a really important word to, to both of you. It comes up a lot, and I think rightly so. Uh, nuance. Uh, your advice to keep it nuanced. It's hugely important, obviously. Uh, and it comes up again and again. So talk a little bit about the the importance of nuance and the role it plays in your conversations with each other? Well, I think when we started, we thought nuance was a noun. I think for me personally, a lot of times it meant compromise. Well, mm-hmm. we'll find the space in which we both agree, and that will be the nuance spot. It will always be the middle. It will always be the compromise. It'll be, it'll be a, a destination, right? Um, and over time, what I've really learned and realized as we 
as we continue to talk is that nuance is a practice. It's not a destination. <laughs> it's a journey. And it doesn't mean compromise. Sometimes nuance is saying, I understand. I, I can now understand why you're not willing to budge. I hope you understand why I'm not willing to budge. And the nuance is just going to accept that we can both be right, that we can move towards another person or, or lean into a perspective that I don't understand and see the truth, the truth from their perspective. I might still disagree, but I can at least get closer to understanding or just, man, just be willing to listen. Yeah. Um, I think that is nuance has, has, more become just it's like a verb it's just a practice more than it is a noun go ahead Sarah. A, a big piece of it for me is that we don't have to be logically or intellectually consistent all the time we don't have to have a set of rules that resolve every debate or problem a great example of nuance and this is the one we use in the book to me is the me too movement because those are situations where there isn't always a clear hero and villain. I think the conversation surrounding how Joe Biden has interacted with women is a great example of how interpersonal interactions are nuanced. Yeah. The same embrace of three different people will be received differently. And the context matters. The relationship matters. The power dynamics matter. The relative... Um, just personalities of the people involved matter. And I think that's where nuance comes into play. You know, everybody wants kind of here are the rules. And if I do these four or five things, the world will leave me alone. Yeah. And that's just not the world we find ourselves in. We are going to work on each other. You know, we are going to keep having conflicts that we have to be able to resolve. And it's okay to be inconsistent in how we resolve them because the circumstances require it. So I think nuance um, calls us to to just be a little bit more flexible yeah I, I think that the biden example i hadn't thought about that but that's a that's a great example of that because it's something i personally struggle with and, and you know if, if if some of the same things that happen in the context of say a donald trump who's not on my team i would find myself jumping to very different conclusions than i do with someone like a uh, like a, a joe biden who i agree with on so many things politically so that's a that's a great way to to kind of put that into into some sort of context um well i i know we're i know we're kind of running out of time and so i just wanted to say i i've i've enjoyed your 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 podcast for years and it's a great book i hope people i hope people buy it and i think they can learn a lot from it and just thank you both so much for the work you're doing and for taking the time to talk with me today likewise mike we really value what yeah, you do thank you. and thank you so much that's it for this episode thanks for listening we hope you liked what you heard Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you get not only our gratitude, but a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each week. And supporters at various levels can get additional bonuses like Politics Guys gear and access to a special supporters-only Facebook group. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or visit the support page on our website, politicsguys.com support. Subscribing to the show also really helps, as does sharing episodes, which is easy to do right there in your podcast app. Word of mouth really is the best advertising, and we greatly appreciate it. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes or whatever other podcast app you're listening to on also really helps. And hey, if you've got a question, comment, correction, or just 
want to say hi, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. There's also our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.